0: These episodes feature contemporary artists presenting the latest exhibitions and projects. This podcast is brought to you by the Perrotin Gallery, based in Paris, Hong Kong, New York, Seoul, Tokyo, and Shanghai.
1: A lot of what I do uh, in um, editing moving images um, involves... um, current versions of of traditional animation processes, um, particularly rotoscoping, which is, uh, it it comes from cell animation, where um, you would go literally image by image, 30 images per second to create a moving image, and basically draw uh, or, or manipulate each still of the moving image. Very time-consuming. A lot of what I do does relate to such processes, and I do absolutely think that it it generates a kind of uh, like a an an altered state of consciousness, Mm, mm. and and I'm interested. I mean, the association that I have with altered state of consciousness is somehow um, a, a challenge to an idea that somehow there's something solid about individuality. To me what the unconscious exposes and what altered state of consciousness shows, exposes that in fact um, uh, the the personality is manipulable and porous and in fact uh, um, something much more amorphous rather than solid.
0: And then, how do we translate it into images, in a sense? What I actually uh, was thinking of when I uh, was looking at, at at your work is that, um, of course, um, television is such a specific medium, and uh, work on television or with images of television is also kind of like, in a sense, marked in a generation uh, in a generational way. So today, when we speak about television and spectacle and mass spectacle. Um, We speak from the future, so to say, from our position being very acquainted to digital media. So when the, telev- the people, uh, artists started working with television in the 60s because, of course, television was fighting against the cinema. So it was something entirely different. So I just wanted to start with this complicated question. I'm very sorry about it, but we can sort of like, you know, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> downgrade it a little bit. Uh, yeah. uh, so how, how do you how do you work with, with these images today? What is your specific take? Because uh, today you understand what I mean. So the computer has a very specific formatting of images. Cell phones have a very specific format of, for, format of images what is television today?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, obviously, you know, I think of 1989 as the sort of official, um, or it's the year thought of as the moment when the internet um, comes into being. Mm -hmm. And to me, what you're referring to has a lot to do with that, you know, what we take to be our current condition or like we th- what we think of as our current condition is of course like deeply influenced by um, the internet and social media, um, even though this is something that's emerged only in like the last uh, 89, 30 years. Um, less than a generation, um, a generation being 40 years. So um, I think the, uh, the, the idea of television from a certain perspective, particularly those born or who predominantly focus on life today through social media and uh, um, appears as something from the past.
0: Antiquated. Yeah, yeah It's antiquated. kind of archaeology of, of media.
1: Yeah. I mean, so it is complicated to me because I I, I mean, part of me, uh, one thing I would like to do is, you know, in a way challenge um, the seeming simplicity of, of that time structure present and past, Um, you know, I I, I don't, I mean, I think that there's just as much continuity from the pre-digital into the digital as there is a break. There is a break, Mm. but there's also deep continuity and in a way like solidification of pre-existing conditions Mm. in the digital. So to me, like the relationship of past to present is something also, you know, that we move constantly, back and forth then. Um, yeah.
0: Um, and in a sense, um, can we talk about the s- spectacle at that point? Yeah. Uh, so the, the spectacle, the popular spectacle, the mass spectacle, the violence of it, but also the joy of it, so what is it, uh, why are you interested in the sense, I'm sorry to sort of like start with, with on that level because we have all read the Deleuze, you know, yeah. uh, and uh, um, how is your, what was at the beginning of your interest, let's say?
1: Um, Well, yeah, I was thinking recently about like, what makes our time different from the 60s or what makes the way we think about media now different from um, somebody like uh, um, um, uh, Society of the Spectacle. Yeah. Gideboard, yeah. I mean, to me, in some ways, like Gideboard is so interesting, and you know, influential to Deleuze and and, and so many other later um, um, philosophers. Um, and yet, you know, uh, Gideboard also, in some ways, could be perceived as antique, like an antique sensibility in relation to um, media. Um, I don't necessarily think so, but you know, I'm just saying. Um, I, you know, to me, uh, I guess I would put it this way. I mean, I'm, I'm very interested in, in um, not just spectacle as something to be consumed but also something which is produced. And um, I am a, you know, my language has, is, is borrowed from tools associated with the bigger industry of the production of, of television and, and movies and, and, and media that circulates. Um, in some ways to me that what happens in an editing room is fascinating to me as an artist partly because I did not go to film school so in a way it's foreign to me Um, you know I learned about uh, about painting and 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 sculpture and my ideas about you know how one constructs form um, you know come more are more like my DNA is somehow like more related to that conversation you know to Greenberg and to like the critics of Greenberg than it is to filmmaking per se um, so it's, it is really fascinating because it's, it's foreign to me I mean one example for it is which illustrates it is that in in art school and in the art world um, I think that there's um, a lot of value attached to the idea that um, ultimately um, There's a kind of um, um, politics behind formal investigation that, you know, there's this idea that to deal with form um, has an ethical dimension in which Mm -hmm. one um, goes past the surface to find the real material condition of things. Mm -hmm. And that to stay on the surface is less, less ethical. To penetrate to the the, the actual material mm-hmm. base mm-hmm. is more honest and more ethical, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, and so for that reason, you know, we um, uh, attempt. Uh, you know, we there's an aspiration I think in in the history of of um, contemporary thinking about art mm-hmm. to strive for a kind of ethical position as an artist that is. Um, that maintains this relationship. Mm -hmm.
0: Um, So, and what is there behind the image for you? So, for you, do you use basically, yeah, yeah.
1: Yeah, the other side of that equation is, you know, in film school, well, ultimately, I think there's also an idea that, say, a sculpture in a room does not, you know, like, um, it doesn't try to influence the viewer. It has its own internal logic. In a way, it has its own, agency and its own, um, like, you know, it's, Yeah, its own objecthood, yeah. and it doesn't care whether somebody's looking at it or not. Yeah. It is integral to its own structure yeah. internally. Um, in, film, in film school, um, the first lesson in directing is that you don't make any decision unless it's related to the reception by the yeah. viewer. So it's the exact opposite. Um, you, know, you would not, never do anything in editing or in filmmaking except that it's meant to influence the psych- psychologically and perceptually the receiver of that image.
0: And this is how you think as well, how you conceive your images or not at all. Do you play well, along or in opposite to this?
1: I mean to me it's striking because you know, I was raised uh, um, as an artist in a school that promoted the first idea of a kind of aesthetic ethics mm-hmm. geared towards, you know, a kind of formal integrity and a formal honesty, um, so the idea that there are others who went to a different kind of school who were told the first thing you have to do is manipulate the viewer, yeah. and every aesthetic decision you make is about the manipulation of the viewer, is very startling. I think that you know, in the world today, uh, whether we recognize it or not we live in a kind of aesthetic regime which actually combines both of these things. Um, it seems contradictory, but I think the, the rate at which the moving image increases and infiltrates all areas of life must mean that, you know, the production of, of things, images and objects from a kind of filmmaker's perspective is inherently about manipulation, so um, how do we kind of like, you know, synthesize, I mean, to me, working in art is my love. And although I'm fascinated by filmmaking, I've never chosen to become a filmmaker. And, it's, and, and in a way, I'm less interested in the context of filmmaking. I'm very interested in the, in the specificity of the context of art making.
0: Well, there's that's, that's something from the object also, because you isolate bodies, for example, yeah. in your film, so you focus on, on, on one movement. And since you mentioned this um, relationship to sculpture, uh, I was quite intrigued by your Karyatid series, uh, and also by the fact that you use uh, titles from Christian iconography very often applying them on a different medium, different time, different type of bodies, so different aesthetics. Uh, could we talk about this? So could you uh, just describe what the Karyatid series is about? Because of course people don't know, uh, don't know maybe the work.
1: Yeah. Um, the, the title Karyatid, is, I first used it in, I think, 2003. Um, and there are works in the show here at Peritan that um, carry the title caryatid yeah. now. So that's over like 15 years I've been using that title. And what I've attached to that title has been a number of different things. Mm-hmm. The, the, the very first caryatid was uh, an image of a uh, trophy, a trophy. Um, specifically the Stanley Cup trophy which comes you know which is uh, related to ice hockey but the point to me is it's it's kind of the most iconic trophy you can imagine because the idea behind the 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 Stanley Cup trophy is that every new winner is their names are added to the trophy so the trophy is basically a history of all the winners of the Stanley of of the sport of ice hockey. But over I the also years.
0: I also believe that um, there is a, a, a film, uh, where featuring uh, film, let's say a work, film-based video yeah. of, of yours, uh, featuring uh, a boxer. Yes. Carrying the same title. Yes. So this is what uh, what, I, uh, what I wanted to ask you about, because, of course, just to uh, allow me to read what the karyatid means, yes. because a lot of people know, but some maybe not. But I also find it quite interesting and beautifully written, because I found a wonderful quote about what, what it actually means. So in Greek, uh, it means the maidens of Karye, Kary, uh, difficult to pronounce in, in, in English, an ancient town of Peloponnese. Mm-hmm and uh, Caria had a famous temple dedicated to the goddess Artemis. Carias performed ritual dances, and this is quite beautiful, in their ecstatic round dance, they carried on their heads baskets or live reeds, as if they were dancing plants. So, firstly, we have uh, we female sculpture carrying actually the, the the roofs of the temples, but you have a male boxer sort of like <laughs> called Karyatis, So, what did you exactly? What did you did you want to say?
1: Wait, can I ask you where does this where does the, that um, description come from?
0: Uh, I uh, I found it from uh, in an encyclopedia. Okay. Yeah.
1: Um, it's funny because I was just talking to uh, somewhat earlier today about, uh, about how, uh, about the Caryatids, uh, the, where I discovered the term is, is, um, you know, there was a, there was the time when I got, uh, really ob- obsessed with, uh, classical architecture, um, and, uh, you know, you can buy, like, a pocketbook English version of, um, Vitruvius's Ten Books of Architecture, which is kind of astounding. Vitruvius was the the architect, the official architect of of Julius Caesar. And somehow uh, several copies of a book that he wrote for Julius Caesar, the 10 books of architecture, survived and has been translated. This is literally the oldest book of Western architecture. um, And we actually can read it today. Um, And the first chapter of of the 10 books of architecture of, of Vitruvius, um, describes the Karyatids, and the way he describes it is that Karyae, uh, city, a uh, city-state in Peloponnesia, at a certain point, it um, decided to subvert and go to war against Athens um, in a play of power, and Carrier lost. And um, because they were actually an ally city-state up until that time that they turned against Athens, mm-hmm. um, the Athenians considered it the worst treason possible. Mm-hmm. Um, they were betrayed by one of their own like brother or sister city-states. So the punishment was they killed all the men, and they turned all the women into slaves. Mm-hmm. Um, And to further humiliate the army of Carrier, or the people of Carrier, um, they made effigies of the wives of the general. And they made these effigies uh, as kind of like columns to hold the roof of the temple, um, which you can see to this day on the Acropolis in Greece, in Athens, Um, one of the oldest, you know, the uh, structures, um, it was, you know, and, and to be put on the Acropolis means like, you are going to stay there forever. That is the, the one place which represents eternity in, in ancient Greek culture. And so, it was basically the most profound humiliation um, possible. And I was mentioning, to me there's like a, a really, a kind of fascinating question to me that comes up. You know, in, in the classical orders, in, 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 in classical architecture, there's several different kinds of columns. Mm-hmm. Um, there's like the Doric, there's yeah. the Corinthian and so forth, the Ionic. Mm-hmm. Um, all of them are abstract. The only column which takes a figurative form is the Caryatid. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah. from the beginning of Western aesthetics, yeah. there is an association with figuration with punishment and humiliation. And slavery, basically, the yeah. the Karyatis are the first representations of slaves.
0: Yeah, yeah uh, I'm hesitating whether we should go into the Christian titles now on into the question of violence, <laughs> since we started on. The, maybe this is important because uh, um, it is very often um, highlighted uh, in in your in your films. Um, I wonder. What is it? Just uh, you, do you work with the image, or do you go precisely into this space of wanting to really articulate something uh, with the political content? Let's say. So, uh, how was the beginning, and how did you develop this work? And and how, because it is so visible in your work, because yeah. you highlight, you put it on display, somehow you bring it forward.
1: Right. Well actually i i'll relate it even to the the subject of um classical architecture what really fascinated me about what got me into classical architecture is um that i read a book um that described how you know in like in 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 the early i mean in, in ancient for um, you know in ancient discussions about aesthetics um, there was this idea that there was a, a, a kind of a relationship between all the levels of existence um, like a kind of cosmic order of things so that um, for example you know the human body follows a certain kind of geometry and that this geometry can also be found on the level of society, like a, a good society is like a good body. It's like um, Vitruvian man. The Vitruvian man precisely. Yeah. And, um, and even beyond that, the cosmos is another reflection of the body and society. Um, so even on the level of divinity, there are these correspondences where everything reflects down. So to become an architect and to learn about proportion is actually not just a specialized practice. It relates directly to statecraft and to spiritual existence on the most kind of deep level. Um, so I guess, you know, to answer your question, I, I think I mean for me, you know, I I I, I find it impossible to separate the the kind of the formal investigation of the image with the political dimension because um, for me, you know, the description of classical architecture as having these correspondences to society and to the cosmic order, this is um, to say that, you know, something on a formal level is actually deeply political because it relates to politics and ethics on other levels through correspondence. So, mm-hmm. yeah, I don't know. I, to me, you know, like I think like the, the oftentimes these politics and aesthetics are thought of as like diametrically opposed things um, or two very kind of separated dimensions. But I, I somehow I think about image making in relation to like, you know, an inspiration like class, classical architecture as as like to enter into the aesthetic realm
0: um, has a
1: correspondence with the political realm
0: um, and then uh, just like to stay on maybe the the, 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 the the investigation of the image, because you also said that um, repetition and loop like are like a fireplace, mm. so people watch, they stay for a while yeah and they get somehow uh, connected, attached, yeah, exactly. Uh, So it means that you do influence a spectator. Yeah.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I don't know, I'm I'm, like, I think I've been, I'm I'm very interested in in, like the the evolution, like what, appears to me to be a kind of increasing interest in um, theories of psychology that have to do with like cognition and um, a more kind of um, less Freudian and more kind of behavioral um, way of thinking of what happens like in Freud you know human beings are wired totally different from animals you know like animals tend to congregate in packs whereas for freud the essential unit of human groups is the family and everything about your individual identity is predicated on your relationship with your mother and your father and the you know the passing of these uh, of of certain codes in this familial way whereas you know we don't think about animals this way and we, we
0: don't think about our, uh, ourselves the Freudian way anymore. <laughs> but that's what <laughs> I'm
1: saying. Yeah. To me, like, you know, Freudian psychology is, is very uh, antique at this point. I think yeah. now we think of the human brain and even human behavior as actually, in some ways, really akin to like um, artificial intelligence. Like, yeah. you know, the human brain is like a computer yeah. and a computer can be reprogrammed, and a human brain can be reprogrammed too. Uh,
0: speaking about programming, maybe it is um, we could talk about the uh, the the film, the the video installation you are showing here, yeah, uh, which involves sound. Yes, and uh, we could perhaps describe it, maybe uh, because not everybody has seen it. So it is about this match of the century, and uh, about. Uh, you changed the soundtrack so you took out yeah. so it is a boxing match which was uh, uh you, do, you 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 uh, made the film in 2015 right and the match took place when in 2015, 2015. Yeah. Uh, so and you changed the soundtrack you took out the all the sound of the cheering crowd you manipulated the sound, and you show both manipulation of... Uh, uh, you show the sound, and you show also people making
1: the sound. Yes, yes.
0: So, um, could you talk about this yeah. work?
1: Yeah, well, thank you. That's a direct connection to what I'm yeah, well,
0: yeah, thinking I about. I thought,
1: yeah. um, because. You know the piece really, in a way, it was an excuse for me to delve deeply into um, a particular aspect of filmmaking, sound production, um, which is something that I'm. I'm. I mean, I think. Generally speaking, sound is becoming more and more interesting in culture, um, as as a kind of. Um, both you know an increasingly like available and and uh, important part of our cultural lives and also like a a place of like amazing experimentation and innovation um but also in a way like sound as a kind of metaphor for culture and maybe even just reality in general because unlike images um sound is some it's like water it's like you know it's it it it's hard to really define what Sound is and what its influence is on us um in in a sense, I think sound is even more psychological than images
0: there you you um it's it's a slightly ironic is it ironic was was the work meant in an, in an ironic way because you uh Kind of kill them the, the mystery, actually, because you show you display, you disclose this very production the, 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 the artifice in a sense of this yeah. sound production, and then we have two uh, uh, huge violent uh, boxers delivering this absolutely amazing spectacle on one hand and then on the other hand, uh, two men trying to produce the sound right. for them
1: well, I mean the way I thought about it and what I, what I tried to do with this piece is. Um, it, it's constantly moving between there's two screens in the room, and um, on one screen is the screen is the boxing match, and on the other screen is uh, documentation of the sound production studio where the soundtrack was created. It happens that the sound production studio was in uh, Thailand, Bangkok, Thailand, um, and this where a lot of international films are actually. Um, produced um, on on the kind of electronic level. So what's happening in the course of the installation, the installation is uh, the film is a two-channel film and it lasts for 48 minutes which is actually exactly the length of the original boxing match in 2015. 12 rounds times three minutes plus one minute in between each round equals 48 minutes. Who won actually? Um, It was uh, Floyd Mayweather. And I I would love to talk with you about Floyd Mayweather. But the, so what's happening in the, um, in in the installation is that the, um, the sound jumps between the two screens. Um, It stays on one screen for a few minutes and then it jumps to the other screen. And um, there's a difference. When this, when the sound is on the screen showing the boxing match, um, what you're hearing is the sound of the boxing match. Uh, this 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 invented or this this fabricated soundtrack, um, which is amazingly synced to the to every punch and every action in in the boxing match. But every sound is amplified, so it's really it's a, a hyper realistic soundtrack of the boxing match. Yeah. Everything is present: every grunt, every hit, uh, everything is there except for the audience. So, I mean, in a sense, like, that's why it, it's, it's, it's more quiet than a, an, a usual boxing match, but it's also, um, in a way, it's more intense because you hear yeah, the yeah. violence of the impact yeah. more strongly. Yeah. When the sound jumps yeah. to the other screen, you're hearing something else. It's you're, what you're actually hearing is the, 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 the three people, the three main players in the post-production studio discussing the specific details of the sounds they're creating and providing a kind of commentary about whether this sound was accurate to the strength of this particular boxing, I mean this particular hit, or should they do it again because like, it was too hard or it was too soft. So it's a kind of really it has nothing to do with boxing. It has everything to do with sound production. Yeah,
0: and with the image, with the image, because there is no repetition in the sense. It's just that, that you stop the image and then you continue. So we have the discussion on the sound. We stop. The, you stop the image and then it continues. But um, uh, a lot of your work uh, has this repetition. So repeated movement. So you extract. You cut out. Uh, a movement or an expression, yeah. so and then you repeat it, and then uh, for you, repetition had this this seductive quality in a sense, and I wanted to ask you about something. Um, you participated uh, in Sydney Biennial in 2008, and the Sydney Biennial would, uh, was curated by Caroline Christophe Bagarkiev, who curated the Documenta um, in 2013. So, and it was quite an uh, interesting exhibition, um, uh, and the title was "Revolutions Forms That Turn," so uh, which also implies repetition. Yeah. I just wonder what did you show. What did you show in this biennial? How did you relate to this topic? D- did you did you go, or you just you just gave the work, or how how did it how did it work?
1: Um, I showed a piece called Vitruvian Figure, oh. um, which we were just talking about. Okay. Um, if, before I lose the thought, let me just say one thing um, uh, from the previous question. Um, in my interest in that installation where the sound jumps from screen to screen is it's true it does kind of expose the magic in a way um, but I what was really my interest in, in in this piece was to try to create an experience in which perceptually you're jumping from one level of a reality into another and then back again um, you know it becomes you you It's quite seductive when you are hearing the soundtrack playing during the fight, and it is kind of like, it's a bit jarring when it stops and you move to the editing studio. you
0: also deconstruct the spell of the spectacle somehow, um, obviously. It does,
1: it does. I I guess I'm, you know, all I'm saying is that, um, in a sense, the, the spirit of which I intend is less to do with deconstruction per se, and it's more to do with tracing a kind of bodily experience of moving from one dimension of reality to another through these um, constructed sensory inputs like sound production or image production. Um, so, but then yeah. uh, to just go back to the question about Sydney Biennial, yeah. um, uh, I, uh, I'm fascinated with stadiums because I think of stadiums as possibly the biggest, most common form of broadcast studio that we know of, you know, a stadium it, it, these days is full of cameras, and really, like stadiums are built so that they can transmit images of what happens to a mass audience outside the stadium. So, in that sense, stadiums are broadcast studios, um, and everything that's happening inside a stadium is somehow formatted for broadcast. So, um, I in what I when when I, for the Sydney Biennial. Uh, I decided to play with, a, with the architecture of, uh, well, a famous example of a, a stadium in Sydney, Australia, um, the stadium that was built for the Olympics in Sydney in the year 2000. Um, this was built by um, a architectural firm which is actually responsible, it's an, a network of architectural firms that build practically all stadiums around the world um, uh, very interesting. There are sort of local offices in countries around the world and they, mm-hmm. but they share a kind of uh, practice and kind of engineering um, um, specifications for the construction of stadiums. In, um so I, through Carolyn, um, I uh, was able to collaborate with the local office of this architectural firm in Sydney that had built the Olympic Stadium, and um, they gave me access to the architectural plans of the stadium um, uh, which is a 100,000 seat um, stadium. Mm-hmm. And I proposed to them an experiment in which we would expand their design for the Olympic Stadium by a thousand uh, to create a theoretical stadium to fit one million people. Um, wow. And, in fact, they let me they they gave the task to one of their designers, and they came up with a plan for an expanded Sydney Olympic Stadium for a million people. Um, they said you know it would be extremely difficult, but technically speaking, it could be done they they really they designed it in a way that it, it could, could actually yeah. be built mm-hmm. um, My ultimate purpose was then to I wanted to make a sculpture which would take the form of a architectural model of this one million seat stadium. And uh, so what I showed at the Sydney Biennial was a circular stadium um, which was about as big as this room to serve as a model for a life-size version of a stadium that would fit a million people and um, <laughs> it was it was fabricated you know we looked at how how would we fabricate this I- imagine like it's it's eight meters across which is basically a little bit smaller than the size of this room mm-hmm. um as big as that is each seat is like this big that's how many that's how many a million seats is mm. so um
0: and did you use it to film because sometimes you use my uh, for, for your work Well, I mean, in fact,
1: the, the idea of using maquettes to make a film came from there because uh, I didn't make a film, but by the end of the process I thought, you know what, the process is actually more interesting mm-hmm. than the finished object, so I thought if I ever do this again, I will absolutely make a film, make a film. and maybe not even make the sculpture anymore, just make a film of people making um, this million-seat stadium. We I, originally were thinking about um, producing it digitally um, and we uh, I, I approached some fabricators um, in China mm-hmm. to find out if it was possible um, and how much it would cost to do it and um, we only had three months and it was impossible. yeah so we ended up making it by hand <laughs> mm. um, like basically hiring a, a mm. team actually hiring a yeah like a team of people uh, in the Philippines yeah. to, fabricate it to fabricate it one seat at a time yeah.
0: this is quite incredible uh, before opening it uh, to the audience I would like to ask you maybe one question because um, you wrote uh, once that you are setting a relationship between objects since we were talking about an object you produced mm-hmm. uh, as your work, um, so you're setting a relationship between objects, images, and people. Um, Could you elaborate on this? Uh, Was it connected to a specific work uh, or was it uh, was it connected to just a general reflection on your practice?
1: Yeah, well, actually, I want to go back to your question at the beginning Mm -hmm. to answer this question, because I remember at the beginning you asked, you know, like, what is like how do we think about television today mm-hmm. since, you know, television in a way has expanded into like all aspects of life. So like how, how do we think about television today? And actually, um, you know, the Dara Birnbaum is mm-hmm. um, to me like a really, uh, she's one of the early, recognizes one of the early people playing with images from television and I, I heard her give a lecture mm-hmm. once and and she mentioned um the architect Tafuri um -hmm. um, who described uh television as the architecture of today Mm -hmm. um which to me is a very enigmatic thing to say like you think of architecture as being like physical structures that we inhabit Mm. so like how is television architecture to me television is like there's no oh, physicality yeah. to it beyond just like the TV set. It's it's purely an image and it's purely perceptual. Mm. So like how do we inhabit it?
0: Which of course is, is kind of completely wrong also in relationship to the new media and to the computer because we know that there's a huge material infrastructure behind yeah, But the way totally. it is sold is the immaterial one. So yeah. we only see the image but what we don't see is hugely material, energy consuming, water Absolutely. consuming. And, uh, so, I mean, and so to on, me, yeah. this,
1: this, this describes my, like, the way that I relate objects, people, and images. Mm. You know, in some ways, in fact, to take the stadium as an example, like really, you know, in, a, in an average stadium, you would have, say, like 100,000 viewers. That's like, you know, an average big stadium. Um, like any football game or any sporting event, would potentially have millions of viewers, um, which is to say that only a small fraction of viewers actually are in the stadium. The majority of viewers are actually outside of the stadium, and as you said, they that level of infrastructure is invisible to the naked eye. So, I mean, in a sense, to me, like you know, the 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 importance of the stadium. Is not about the numbers because the numbers are few in the stadium versus Mm -hmm. the real viewership. Um, But what's important about the stadium is that the stadium in a way becomes an emblem for that more invisible, larger viewership. Mm. Um, And that defines for me like the kind of the productiveness of the object. Like ultimately I feel like what I'm talking, what I'm interested in addressing as an artist is largely invisible. but I think that there are ways that objects of a simple kind mm-hmm. could be could be used because they are visible to us mm-hmm. in 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 a more straightforward way. Yeah. Can be used as an entry point into this more invisible realm. Um,
0: are there questions? For, you, for me, I think of, uh,
1: like for me, I think of uh, isolation as having a lot of different kinds of qualities, like it has a scientific quality that things, some certain things must be isolated in order to study them, although they exist in another context. And then I think also there's a kind of um, emotive quality of isolation too. And I've always kind of found like, and I'm curious to hear how you think about isolation. My experience of looking at the work, sometimes the isolation is, is, can be very melancholic. Mm-hmm. Whether you're watching someone who's a, who's appears to be alone, even though we know they're not alone, but we have this um, thing that happens where we then identify with them somehow because they're or I do. I can only speak subjectively, but that they're isolated. So I'm curious for you, like if isolation is is a concept or an area that you that obviously it's special to your work. But how do you find it? Is it more analytical or is it more psychological or both? I mean, I mean the first thing that comes to mind to me is. You know, I feel like the, the most, my tendency is that I'm drawn to specifically to images that were originally intended for mass viewership. Um, and yet, I'm always, you know, I mean, to show in a gallery like Paratan, there's only ever gonna be like one or two people looking at it, and in a way, the condition of looking at art to me is a kind of a condition of looking in isolation, dramatically different from the kind of like, you know, the, um, you cannot watch a sporting event. Um, I mean, a sporting event is about the experience of being with a hundred thousand other people, you know, um, that is the point and you know the reason why the crowd sounds that way is because a hundred thousand people have specifically been drawn to be in that condition of like mass viewership they love it i mean we love it and um you know as soon as i don't know if you've ever been to like sporting event about halfway through the sporting event people start to leave because they already know how it's going to end and to me there's always a feeling of disappointment like you don't want the crowd to dissipate when you're in the crowd. Um, you know, the inherent kind of the most essential condition of art viewership is that you are alone. You know, you you are supposed to focus internally and you know and reach a kind of like a more enhanced kind of consciousness through the interaction that you're having uh in this kind of state of like a viewer as one person you know kind of getting to isolate themselves and, and to me that's the essential difference between you know um the context yeah. that i draw materials from and the very purposeful place that i put them but uh,
0: it is of course a very different idea of uh of gaze and of uh of uh, uh, viewership um so to say because uh uh, what uh, what is highlighted or what is wanted is uh, as an enlightened uh, viewer, yeah. so it is, it is it is something about also an educational experience, learning experience, or a kind of like a meditation, it is not about excitement per se, right? Uh, uh, and even anything which was emotional or empathic was out of art for yeah. such a long time, because it was exactly. theoritized, so we are no longer there, let's say, but still the difference is, is, uh, remains huge. But I was uh, wondering, uh, can I ask one question, and then if someone else has one, we, we have one more? or two, uh, because uh, we, we uh, started talking about it, but uh, we, we didn't finish, because you have these images of the TV-based popular culture, uh, let's say, or mass sport events related to Christian iconography in your titles. So. I still would like to have an explanation. <laughs> so where, <laughs> where is the connection? What, why? Um, because I can come up with my own explanations, but I would like to hear yours.
1: Yeah. Well.
0: Because, uh, uh, just, just to give to, to give to give some examples to um, uh, to our audience. So you have a, a work 2007 called the Saints. Then you have a work entitled Four Horsemen of the Ap- Apocalypse, uh, not to mention, again, the Caryatid um, series. Also a
1: fragment of a Crucifixion. Fragment
0: of Crucifixion, John exactly.
1: John <laughs> Yep. Um.
0: Uh, I don't know, if you feel that you can't generalize, you can speak about one specific work.
1: Um. Yeah, I mean, I, 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 I could think of a specific example, but I would, I'd like to just try to approach it generally first. I mean, I would say that, you know, to me what defines, I mean, I think historically, there's been a very deep suspicion on the part of serious, uh, like, you know, art lovers to precisely this kind of culture of the masses Um, you know, like culture of the masses is associated with, um, manipulation in a negative sense, you know, like, uh, pure emotion, very base, you know, like, um, people, um, not seeking higher experience or, or higher knowledge, but really just wanting like satisfaction on a very Mm. basic level. Entertainment. Yeah. Just mindless entertainment. I would argue that like, what really defines our time now is the, um, what's the word I want to use, the total promiscuous intersection of all things. Mm-hmm. Um, you cannot find the, you know, the purity of the modernists and Clement Green- Greenberg, you know, if they ever could in 1960. Exactly. It's certainly, yeah. you know, this has been proven to be like a, a contradiction and a kind of hypocrisy.
0: Has it ever been possible? Since.
1: And, and you know, what really defines language and experience and visuality in our time is like the total admixture, hmm. you know, like the Patois of like all things together, hmm. um, you know, like the like you know, the purest kinds of modernist form are now sold at like design within reach. Um, You know, minimalism is now like a design language for selling like mass objects. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Or objects to the masses and, you know, and vice versa, you know, I think. um, So. I don't know, you know, like I, I, I take a very kind of like. um, What's the word like Catholic approach? Like I'm interested in, like I accept all, and you know I'm interested in in, in you know finding kind of the productive way of synthesizing mm. everything. Maybe I'm like Matthew in this regard. I feel like, you know, I I identify with what you described as like you need to consume, a, you know, a large quantity of information just to kind of like continue to exist creatively. And, I mean, to me this describes all of us, like, you know, we...
0: Uh, Maybe, since I um, failed uh, to introduce you in the beginning, and I started (laughs) talking with the connection between Matthew and Paul, uh, I will introduce you at the end, (laughs) because, uh, Paul, you were born in Honolulu, and then you grew up in the Philippines. And then you uh, received a BFA from the San Francisco Art Institute. And then, and this is what we also wanted to talk about, but we, didn't, we don't have time. Uh, and this is what we share, actually. We both, uh, Paul and myself, we studied, not at the same time, uh, we studied at the Whitney Museum of American Art Independent Studies Program, <laughs> so which is an amazing place. And uh, you also participated in an absolutely stunning number of international exhibitions, which I will not list and quote all of them here. But this is all just to say that uh, it was really great to have you here. We're very happy and I would like to thank you.
1: Thank you too.